You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you haven't already, um, please turn in your Bible or on your phone to Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at this short passage this morning. We live in an age of outrage. I don't know if you've realized that or not, but there is constantly something that people are fuming over, or people are giving an opinion over, or people are arguing over, and it seems like it's just kind of heightened in the last few years um, to a point where it just really affects a lot of people's lives a lot of the time. It can be exhausting, and at the same time, for some people, it can almost be a little bit addictive, like it gets the blood flowing. Recently, in an article on the Gospel Coalition titled, I Lost My Mom to Facebook, one of the paragraphs in the article says this, over a period of three years, Sherry's elderly mom went from Facebook illiterate to Facebook junkie, from a great-grandma liking photos of her great-grandkids to a full-blown QAnon conspiracy theorist posting wild articles. Sherry watched her mom transform from a godly woman who quoted the Sermon on the Mount and told her to respond to bullies by killing them with kindness to an anxiety-filled propagandist warning Sherry that the end was coming. Is this just a phenomenon? Is this just a new thing that has come into our society? And if we're honest, most of us can probably identify with Sherry's mom, right? We have been the ones who've been sucked into different arguments and ideas. And I know it's happened to me in the last few years where I'm just like full-blown into something, tracking way too deep, you know, maybe even down the wormhole, right? And it's hard to get myself back out that wormhole. So are we just left with this reality now for the rest of our existence you know, are we just the generation that was given the iPhone 10 years ago or so, and now we are just doomed to YouTube wormholes? Well, the text we're looking at this morning actually has something to say to this very question. And I just want to be super clear that the answer is a resounding no. Okay, has everybody heard that? The answer is a resounding no. We do not have to be stuck in that cycle. We are called to be, as God's people, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, however you title it, we are called to be people of hope. We have a message to bring to people that should shatter all their fears, that should shatter all of our own fears, and that should bring into those dark spaces a spotlight of hope onto people's lives. And so as we look at our text today, we're going to see how Jesus actually responds to very similar circumstances and living under very similar pressures. And his answer causes the, the Herodians and the Pharisees, if you look right at the end of our little passage, it causes them to marvel at him. They're stunned by how Jesus answers their questions and their pressure. And before we get into the text, let me just pause one more time and let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you've brought all of us here into this room for a specific reason. 
Holy Spirit, would you speak to each of us in this next little portion, this little 30, 40 minutes, and Lord, open our eyes to what you want us to see. God, I pray for softened hearts. I pray that my own heart would be softened as we come under the teaching of the word now. And Lord, we thank you that you will do that work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever set a trap before? This story actually starts with a trap. I'm not much of a trapper. You know, some people do like live traps or whatever. I'm not kind of in that business too much. But I do remember when I was living in Africa, they were, the people that we were living among were all rice farmers. And these were dry rice paddies, okay? Not like what you'd see in Asia where they flood the rice paddies. These were, the rains come like crazy and in the The rice grows, but then it's pretty much dry ground. And so rats love it, okay? Rats will just go in, chop down the rice, and eat it up. So farmers build these fences around their whole fields. And I remember a guy showing me this fence that's about this tall. And the idea is that the rat comes to the field, bumps its little nose up against the fence, and then starts walking along. And it's looking for a way into the field. And so at about four or five spots around the field, there's a doorway, a nice convenient doorway for the rat to go right into. And the rat goes into this doorway, and there's a long, what looks like a long hallway for the rat, and, you know, a a section of about four or five feet, and hanging over that long hallway is a nice heavy log. And as the rat trips the little wire, this four-foot log drops on the rat and either pins it there till the morning when the farmer can, you know, finish the job, or it just suffocates under the log. Okay, that's a trap, right? A trap takes effort. It takes planning. You've got to do it right so that the person or the thing that you're trying to get is actually stopped. Jesus here is heading into a a trap, and the text even says that. Look at verse 13 says this, chapter 12 of Mark, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That word that is used only once in Mark is literally the word that they would use to trap an animal. They are going out to trap him, to find a way to snag him. And they are trying to get him to do something that is still appealing in our age. They're trying to get him to pick a side. Have you ever had this happen to you? Some sort of issue comes into your life, and the question is, whose side are you on? Are you on this side, or are you on that side? And these leaders were coming to Jesus in a alliance of deception, okay? These leaders, you can see in verse 13 there, it says the Pharisees and the Herodians were coming together. These guys would not get along normally in the street, okay? They would not be together at all. The Herodians were these leaders who were connected to Herod who were basically working with the Romans, right? They were content to have the Roman occupation of Israel, and they were trying to do their best so that the Romans move forward and the Herodians move forward. The Pharisees, on the other hand, despised the Romans. The Romans were oppressing Israel, and the Pharisees lived within that, but constantly underneath their breath, they would mock and 
give words of disdain for the Romans. And, and a third group that isn't actually verbally here, but we kind of see like, we see like a little bit of it under the radar is the zealots. And the zealots were like a revolutionary band of people who wanted to and worked directly towards overthrowing the Roman occupation. So these groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, it says, are coming together now in order to trap Jesus. That's what they're unified in. How can we stop Jesus? And Jesus has called them out numerous times. He reads right through them. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus says this, This people, and he's quoting Isaiah here, speaking about the religious leaders, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Jesus says, listen, Israel, these are your religious leaders. They are blind leaders. And if you follow them, they are going to fall into a pit and you're right behind them. You're going to fall right in with them. And so Jesus actually makes plain multiple times their hatred for him and the source even behind their efforts of trapping Jesus. And this kind of selfish poison that they're eating is a poison that not only affects those who are being trapped, there's pain, we'll see that there's pain that comes with that, but it's a poison that is ingested by the people themselves who do the trapping. Scott Sauls in his book, A Gentle Answer, puts it this way, hurtful behaviors such as violence, scorn, gossip, and slander, they injure both the victim and the perpetrator. The hurtful behavior certainly devastates its target, but hate that lies beneath eats the haters alive, clouding their thinking, crippling their hearts, and diminishing their souls. And in the end, those who injure become as miserable as, as those whom they injure. So what Scott is saying, and what Jesus is affirming of the religious leaders, is that they are driven by a darkness. They are driven by a poison that they might even think, and some of them did think, was for the good. Was for the good of the nation. Was for the good of the people. Was for their own good. But they drunk the poison so deeply that they were essentially poisoning themselves. And so Jesus here sees through their work, and he sees himself as one who is hunted, but maybe not hunted by an overt hatred, but it actually comes with like uh, what we would call buttering up. Okay, look at verse 14, the beginning of it. It says this, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I don't think they believed that at all. But it was actually the truth about Jesus. They actually said the truth about him. He didn't actually care at all what they thought, which is kind of ironic because they're coming now to try and, you know, get his impression on certain things. But he doesn't care about any of their opinions. He is only going to do exactly what they say is teach the truth. That's what Jesus is going to do. Teach the truth. 
And so Jesus here is hunted and is spoken of with kind words, but Jesus chose to put on himself this burden of being a human. And not only a human, but someone who would draw a lot of criticism, someone who would be drawn into this kind of a trap of picking sides. Jesus willingly took that on. The very same things that we have faced at times. When you've been pulled into a conversation like that, or when you've even seen it somewhere, these are the things that Jesus faced as well. It says in the scriptures that Jesus experienced physical pain. He experienced emotional pain. Hebrews 5 kind of like gives a general summary. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus suffered. And in Matthew 26, before the cross, this is maybe like his darkest moment. It says, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus is feeling the weight of what it means to be human. The weight of what it means to be under a constant barrage of the stresses of life. Living for 30 years and then entering to three years of ministry with guys like this, leaders like this, constantly after him. Constantly finding ways to trip him up. Constantly looking for ways to see what side is he going to pick. He is hunted. Do you know that we are also people who are hunted in a sense? That we also have laid for us traps in this life? I don't know if that's how you would describe it, but there are times, probably in all of our lives, where we are also asked to pick a side. Or we are asked to make a judgment on something. And then before us comes, maybe some, it comes like this like glee, right? It gets your heart racing. There's like adrenaline. You're in. You're in on the dog fright, right? You're loving it. You're right in it. And others, this like internal stress rises up, some sort of angst that comes within. These are the same kind of burdens, not to the same degree, but the same kind of burdens that Christ faced. And so in those moments of being trapped, in those moments of being hunted, what are we to do? What are we to do as God's people? We are not called to just live under that. We're called to live towards godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, which we've quoted a number of times in this Mark series. I mean, the Mark series has been long enough that a lot of verses have been repeated, okay? But 1 Timothy 4, 7 has come up a few times, and it says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Okay? Have nothing to do with those things. This could have been written like last week, right? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, so here's what we're called to do then as Christians living in this world. We're called to train ourselves for godliness, train ourselves to be prepared to live in that context because we can't change everything in the world. We can't control all that stuff. So we are called then to live in a certain way so that what comes out of our life is actually what the Bible calls godliness. Not perfection, but godliness. And so how do we do that? It comes through our habits. And let me just quickly 
list kind of three practical things that you can actually do to prepare yourself to train for godliness. And the first is this, limit your media consumption. Limit your media consumption. Not the kids in Sunday school, not even the teens in here, us as adults actually putting into practice a limiting of our media consumption. Less opportunities for the traps and the hooks to be set in our mouths. Second, change your practical habits because that can be really hard when this thing is always in our pocket, right? So change the actual practical habits of your life. Recently for the last, I don't know, like three months or so, two or three months, I did something just to change that habit. I took my phone, which was normally my alarm. It's got a great alarm, right? It slowly ascends to loudness. Do you guys have that one? Slowly rises. I don't want the like loud in your face thing. Slowly ascending. So really nice way to wake up, you know? You just wake up with a smile. Well, I took my phone... And I now plug it into the living room, okay? And I brought up my, my old clock alarm, which is a more like punch in the face wake up, right? Like, bam, bam, bam. There's no like gradual ascending. This is a practical application, right? Rather than me just looking at my phone before bed, I'm actually taking a step to do something. Now that might not be the answer for you at all, okay? You may love the ascending alarm. Stick with it. But finding ways to practically change the habits of our lives will limit the amount of touch points into our soul. And then the last one is the most important, is to practice the disciplines of the faith. Begin to work into our lives the practice of Scripture, the practice of prayer, and the practice of community, gathering with God's people, so that these things become out of habit and routine, not, to, not so that God is more pleased with me, but so that I'm training for godliness. They become things that are non-negotiable in my life. They become things that are not questions. They are habits of life. Like I eat lunch, like I drink water, I do these things regularly because it's for my own survival as a follower of Christ. And so Jesus here is entered into this trap just like we often are. And the trap then is a question. It's led with a question. If you have your Bibles again, let's look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this, the the second part of it. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? There's the question. Jesus, which, which side are you on? And that's like... That's a hot potato question, right? That's like if you're out on the street and someone comes up to you with like a camera and a microphone and they're like, hey, what are your thoughts on abortion in Canada? You know, what are your thoughts on how the residential school has been dealt with? Like these are hot potato questions. And this is the exact kind of question that they want to ask Jesus. Which side are you on? If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then most of the Jewish people are going to be like, we're not for him. We can't stand that the Romans are here oppressing us. But if he says no, then the Romans are going to be like, okay, here's another revolutionary. We got to like shut this thing down. So there's no good answer here, right? Which there generally isn't with taxes, right? There's no good answer here. And they honestly don't even care what his answer is. All they're wanting to do is trip him up. 
All they're wanting him to do is say the wrong thing, which is so easy to do. Look at verse 15. It says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus here responds to the hot potato question. He doesn't, he's not baffled by it. He's not tricked by it. If I was asked a question like that, maybe like if, the, if everything was in alignment and I had just the right volume of coffee that day, I'd give like a really good answer and people would just be impressed. But most likely not, right? I would say something offbeat or something that was like an internal thought would come out and I'm like, oh, I didn't want to say that. But Jesus doesn't skip a beat. Jesus actually has been living under this for years and he's seen right through the religious leaders and he freely answers this question. They had been working, they possibly were working on this question for three years. In Mark 3, in Mark chapter 3 verse 6, it says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's in Mark chapter 3. They've been thinking up ways and thinking of questions somehow to be able to like trip up Jesus. And this question was possibly years in the making. And they're like, this is it, man. This was like three years of labor. We got the best one now. Let's lay it on him. And Jesus responds. Look again at verse 15 and 16. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus acknowledges firstly that they are living under a tyrant. Jesus doesn't ignore that. Jesus doesn't pretend that something else is happening here. He says, I, I get what you're living under. And he says, bring me a coin. And you can still look those coins up. You can see what they look like to this day. And on those coins, it says this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, Caesar, basically claiming himself to be God. And then on the other side, it says, chief priest. So just the message alone, the inscription on the coins, was one of being an affront to God and even to the Son of God who's standing right in front of them. And Jesus acknowledges that this is what you're living under. He says, let's not pretend that you're not living under this. You're living under Caesar, a dictator, who is putting this burden of taxation on you. And then he gives them an answer. Verse 17, a, a very well-known verse for a lot of people. Verse 17 says this, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus gives them an answer. It maybe isn't the liberal answer or the conservative answer. It might not be the Herodian answer or the Pharisee answer. What he gives them actually is the truth. And the first truth that he gives them is this. Give Caesar your taxes. He makes it really clear. Jesus doesn't pretend that they're living in some other world or that there's some like kingdom that's future that he can kind of like get them to think about this place. He interacts with their real 
world around them. And the message is really simple. Pay your taxes. He's saying you're living in the Roman world and you're evidently they had the coin even in their pocket. You are using this coinage that has been minted and made by Caesar. Caesar literally used his own silver to make these things that you are using now. So you are in in some ways benefiting even from that. And he says, then the cost of that is pay your taxes to Caesar. Pay your taxes to Caesar. Now the relationship between the state and people is always tenuous, right? We would all know that. There's always an element of testing that people or that societies do to see how far can they go. And usually what happens in most societies around the world is power dictates the answer. Power is the thing that settles down smaller powers. And I've lived in a country when I was in West Africa that was literally run by a dictator. So if you want to do something against the dictator, you will be pressed down and pressed down hard, okay? And so Jesus acknowledges that they are living in this world. But he also, listen clearly here, Jesus here affirms the right of the state to exercise its authority. Jesus affirms the right of the state to exercise its authority. Now listen, it's not a black and white answer for us, right? There's not like, there's not every situation in there. So it's not like, you know, verse 17 subpoint F says that if Christians are overly taxed because they're Christians, then we're not supposed to pay taxes. Or, you know, X, there's no list of all the kinds of different things that we could get into. There is a general principle that he lays out there, and it's that we are called to generally follow the, the rule of Scripture and also the rule of our state leaders so that we can do these two things. I'm just quoting a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, so that we can aspire to live quietly. That we can aspire to live quietly. And as 1 Peter 2 says, that we'd be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, to governors as sent by, by him to punish those who do evil or to praise those who do good. So as a general rule for life, Jesus here is affirming that we are called to follow our authorities, to pay our taxes. And why do we do that? Peter makes it the most clear because Peter is actually addressing the issue. We do it for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. But there are times... When God's word speaks over the word, even of authority, there are times, and we can see different examples of that happening in Scripture. I just picked one from the life of Jesus when Jesus is standing before Pilate. This is maybe the clearest. He's standing before a head leader. And the Scripture in John 19, verses 10 and 11 says this, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Pilate is like, asking him questions. He's trying to get to the bottom of what Jesus is about. Do you not know that I have authority to, re- to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless I had, it had been given to you from above. So Jesus says, listen, you're the highest leader here in the region, but he's, Jesus puts like a pause on what's actually happening there. Jesus says, 
Here's a pause. You only have the authority you have because you get it from God. God is the ultimate authority. And the only reason that you have it is because God has given it to you. So Jesus makes clear that there are times where God's authority supersedes man's authority. But note that Jesus points it out here, and I was trying to reflect in my mind how many other times Jesus does this in his life. You may be able to think of some, but I honestly couldn't think of any others. There are times where he does this with religious leaders, but with the ruling authorities, with the Roman authorities, this is about the only time that Jesus does it. Other than that, Jesus puts himself under their authority all the way to the point where he allows himself to be crucified in a kangaroo court. Placing himself under that authority that is illegitimate on so many levels. So, pay to Caesar your taxes. Now, the second part of that verse, of verse 17, is maybe the most controversial part, okay? Maybe you thought what we just did was the controversial part, okay? This is probably more controversial because this goes to the heart of every single one of us. This goes straight into our personal will because here Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. What is God's? What is God's? Everything is God's, right? Everything. There is nothing on this planet that is not his. So that statement in and of itself is sweeping. It is massive. That means everything in our lives comes under his reign and rule. But specifically here, I just want to point out three things as it relates to the context of the text, okay? Because God owns everything, we could be here a long time and we could talk about all those things. I just want to point out three things that we'll just quickly go over here since our time is running. The first is this. God is primary over political movements. This is the open door that Jesus has to get into the political movement, and he slams it shut. God is over political movements, which means that God is the primary, and, and the kingdom of God is the primary effort that is moving forward. And in the, in the hearts and minds of Christians, that should be number one. That should be forefront in what we are involved in. It doesn't mean, though, that we are totally a separation of church and state, okay? It doesn't mean that. Like, we, we only do things that are Christian-y, and we're only involved in those things, and the, the state kind of things, that's not for us. No, it actually means that when we are actively involved in the political life of the world that we are living in, it is directly informed by Christ's kingdom. Politics comes downriver from what Jesus is doing and how he's building his kingdom. So when we have people who are involved in politics or doing something in that regard, when they bring in justice and they bring in God's view on the world into that space, we bless them and we pray for them, but they realize and we realize that the ultimate kingdom, the ultimate win for Christ is his kingdom. That is the win. So God is primary over political movements. Secondly, God is primary over money. Specifically, I guess, your money, okay? Your money and my money. This is a passage dealing on money and taxes. 
And Jesus is saying, take your money, whether it goes to taxes or in other scriptures, we see it goes to other places. Your money is only temporary in your pockets or in your bank account. Eventually, here's the bad news, you will die. And your money will go to someone else. It may go to your children. It may go to the state. It may go to some other bank. I don't know where it's going to go, okay? But you are not taking it with you. And so we are called in Scripture, we're reminded regularly, to steward what God gives us. And the money that we have, wherever it goes, we do the best that we can to steward what God has given to us. It does not become primary in our life. It is secondary again to what God is doing. And then lastly, God is primary over you. And this may be the most difficult one to swallow, maybe the most controversial, because we are living in an age of self-determination. We are living in an age that says, what you choose to do with your life is up to you. You determine it. You decide. You decide what is right or what is wrong. You make those determinations. But here Jesus is saying, everything is God's. And God is the one who calls the shots. So when it comes to people, when it comes to mankind, God has made us. And in Genesis 1, it explains for us how God has made us. God created Adam and Eve. He created a man and a woman. And they were to be together. They were both created in the image of God, it says. They are image bearers, equally valued before God. But God also says they are different. They are meant to some translations say fit or they are meant to be together so that in their, in their difference, they actually work together for God's purposes and his glory. God is the one as creator, as maker of us, who gives us that purpose. He makes clear for us what the vision for our lives should be. So the self-determination see that we live in goes directly against what God is revealing to us. So verse 17, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, the religious leaders stand marveled. Because Jesus not only avoided the trap, but he was able to bring clarity actually to what God is doing in the state and in our own lives. In AD 6, not 86, in 6 AD, let's put it that way, in 6 AD, was, that was the year that the Romans actually instituted this poll tax. And that year there was a zealot who stood up and said, we will not pay this tax. Judas the Galilean started a revolt and slowly that revolt grew over time. He was crushed and killed by the state and ultimately it led to Jerusalem and Israel being crushed in 70 AD. And behind this whole entrapment, behind all these questions, the religious leaders are actually asking, Jesus, what kind of revolutionary are you? Are you like Judas? You're just going to start this new thing to buck up against the the state, or you're going to have this band of followers who are going to stand up against something. And Jesus here wants them to see that he's a different kind of leader. He's a revolutionary, absolutely. He still is. But he is a revolutionary king who is good, who is gentle and lowly, 
He's one who's poor, who doesn't even have his own denarius in his pocket. He has to ask for one to show an example. He is one who teaches and lives out his own ethic, which is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who we've called to follow. That's who we follow. A good king who leads by example and who goes to the cross for his people so that they can join him in a kingdom of justice and love like none other has been seen before. And so to that we say, this is the Jesus that we choose to follow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the hard truths in Scripture, Lord, that confront us in the places where we most need confronting. And Lord, I pray that today people would leave not feeling confronted by me, the preacher, or even the ideas that I'm bringing up, but Lord, would the Word of God confront us and would it ultimately lead us to Jesus, who is this king of love who shows grace and who sacrifices himself for the good of his brothers and sisters. Amen.